Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so that we are spiritually prepared to study the word, that we are in right relationship uh, with God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who teaches us and helps us to understand and apply his word. And uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have this time to study your word, to be refreshed by uh, your word as God the Holy Spirit takes these uh, things, these teachings, the doctrines uh, that are embedded in Scripture, makes them clear to us and shows how we need to apply them in our own lives. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we study them this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get started, we need to recognize that there's uh, a couple of things significant going on in the Jewish community right now. And that is because the holiday season in September really has isn't over. We had uh, Rabbi Haas, of course, come in and talk to us about uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but those those were just the first part of the uh, of the holy days. Following Yom Kippur, five days after Yom Kippur, which was approximately two weeks ago, uh, five days after that began the Sukkot, which was the Feast of Tabernacles. And sometimes it's also referred to as the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Tabernacles is described in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. And it was the third of the three major feast days on the, on the ritual calendar of Israel that required all adult males to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to observe it at the, uh, at the temple. It was a time that was a reflection on the way God protected uh, protected the uh, Israelites during the 40 years in the wilderness, and this was done by building a sukkah. A sukkah was a temporary shelter. We'd call it a lean-to, something of that nature that uh, was a reminder of living in temporary shelters during the time in the, in the wilderness and how God had provided for them. It came at the uh, end of the, also came at the end of the fall harvest, so it was a time to celebrate God's provision for uh, the Israelites and his provision of food for them, so it's a time of celebration and a time of rejoicing. It was to begin on the 15th day of the seventh month, uh, Yom Kippur was on the 10th day, It would uh, and Sukkah, Sukkot lasts for seven Days. The eighth day, which was yesterday, the eighth day began at sundown last night, and that is known as Shemini Atzeret. And Shemini Atzeret is a time uh, to observe the uh, eighth day, the last day of the uh, Sukkot, and so it's a time of uh, treated like a Shabbat, treated like a Sabbath, so that there's no work done on, on that particular day. And then that day is followed by what began at sundown tonight, goes to sundown tomorrow night, which is a celebration referred to in, in Judaism as Simchat Torah, which has to do with the joy of the Torah, the uh, giving of the law. Now, this is not a, a biblical, neither um, uh, Shemedi Atzeret nor Simchat Torah, are biblically based holidays. They came into uh, Judaism over time. Uh, Simchat Torah came in around the 9th or 10th century as a time to uh, celebrate the giving of the law. In Judaism, what they've done, they, they, 
they focus on the reading of the Torah, and many times they don't read uh, the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, are not as familiar with them because the Torah is divided into 54 sections called Pasherah. And each week they read one of those sections, so they're quite large. And at the end of the year, which is now, they'll read the last couple of chapters in Deuteronomy and then the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And this is a public reading uh, public reading of the Scripture. Of course, that was practiced in both the Old Testament period and in the New Testament times. It's referred to in a, several passages in uh, the book of Acts. But as, a, as it is presently observed, that is a, just a celebration, a holiday that comes in uh, rather late in history. So if you, as you can see, if you are an observant Jew during the uh, month of September, you pretty much have a lot of holidays, and you don't go to work very much. So it's a little difficult to get any business done, uh, you might say. Okay, our study tonight is in Hebrews chapter 12, which I'm calling the preparation for the Bema. That's the focal point in the last section of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 uh, to 28. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 25 to 28, and this is really the warning section. There is a exhortation or challenge in 12, uh, 1 down to 24, and this ends with a short uh, four-verse warning to those to whom the writer uh, is speaking. He's challenging them once again with the dangers that come if you fall into what we would call carnality, if you fall into uh, a lengthy period of disobedience and rebellion against God, if you just give up your Christianity and decide to live according to some other religious system, or if you, in their case, decide to go back to Judaism, uh, yielding to the uh, pressure, the adversity, the opposition that they encountered, uh, in some cases persecution that they encountered, or if you just decide to say, well, the heck with it, I'm just going to uh, live for myself and give up uh, <coughs> following Scripture, there are consequences. There is a spiritual danger that we are warned about because not only does will that possibly entail uh, divine discipline and punishment during this life, but it also will lead to the loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, remember, we've studied this many times, is described in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's the description there of all of our works, good and bad, uh, that is divine good versus human good, all piled up as if it were going to be burned. And the burning is uh, indicative of purification. And this begins in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse in verse 10. Paul uses the analogy of being a builder. And the foundation is Christ, and our lives are made of many different decisions and many different activities. And as it were, we are constructing something on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Some of the tool, some of the materials that we use are the products of our flesh or sin nature, and it has no value. It can be good or it, or, or not. The issue here isn't judgment of sin. The issue here is that there are things that we build with that are not the product of the Holy Spirit. So they're defined as wood, hay, and straw. Other building elements are defined as gold, silver, and precious stones, or described as gold, silver, and precious stones, and that reflects the uh, fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in our life, they, and the production of the Spirit that uh, <clears throat> produces something of enduring value, gold, silver, and precious stones. So at the judgment seat of Christ, there's this picture of the bur- burning up all of the building materials, so that that which has no enduring value is destroyed. The focal point is not on exposing what is bad, but exposing what's left, which is the gold, silver, and the precious stones. A lot of people get all worried about that. But the word that is, that is used here in verse 13, that the fire will test 
each man's word work is a Greek word that indicates evaluation for the purpose of showing what is good, not evaluation for the purpose of showing what is uh, what is bad. So the fire, as it were, this is metaphorical, uh, burns up that which is has no eternal value, and then rewards are based on what survives, on what endures. And that which endures is that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit uh, in our life. And so the warning comes here in verse 25, as the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, that takes us back to the illustration he just used of the two mountains, the mountain of Sinai, where God appeared to the nation Israel, spoke to them from the mountain so they could hear it. Their response was fear and trembling, and their desire was that, Lord, we don't want to listen to you. The voice scares us. Send send Moses up on the mountain and explain, give the law to him. Now, in Exodus, this was depicted as as not a bad thing. In fact, God said that it was a good thing. But what the writer of Hebrews is focusing on when he paints it as a negative thing is the consequence. The consequence was that in that uh, rebellious generation of the Exodus generation, even though they heard the voice of God, even though they had seen all of the miracles leading up to the Exodus, even though they saw and witnessed God deliver them again and again from enemies during the 40 years in the wilderness, even though they saw God provide manna for them every day, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out, uh, God protected and preserved them for those 40 years Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebellious again and again and again. This is the same uh, type point that the writer of Hebrews made back in Hebrews chapter 3 when he warned the, the readers again, don't be like that Exodus generation who because of disobedience and because they did not believe God, they failed to enter into the rest the rest being entering into the promised land and God's provision. And so God had to discipline them, and they never saw their reward of entering into the uh, promised land. So here he warns them again, see to it, and he uses the Greek imperative, a present active imperative, uh, which indicates continuous action in a person's life. There, it's not just a one-time decision, but that we are to continuously be on guard that we not slip into extended carnality. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, God not only spoke at Sinai, but he speaks again from the heavenly Zion in terms of the new covenant and what is provided for us in Jesus Christ. So we are not to refuse him who speaks, that is through the revelation of the new covenant, revelation that is within the New Testament scriptures. And then he explains it to drive the point home. He says, for if uh, they did not, I said, see to it that you do not refuse him. That just means to say no or to reject what God says. And then in the next statement, he says, for if they did not escape, the verb there for escape is uh, simply the aorist form of ekphoigo, meaning to uh, literally just to escape or escape judgment, escape the consequences of their action. It's a first-class condition. The if should be understood as if, and this is true. They did not escape. There were consequences. There were consequences in time and consequences uh, in eternity. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, that is, from Mount Sinai, and here he uses uh, what's called an a fortiori argument, which is an argument from the weaker to the stronger. He says, look, if, if the, the Israelites at Sinai didn't escape the consequences of disobeying God who spoke from Mount Sinai, how much more will we not escape consequences when we are refusing to listen to the God who is speaking from uh, the heavenly Mount Zion and speaking to us through the New Testament. So once again, this is building the uh, results of the fact that we are in a superior relationship to God via the uh, based on the sacrifice of Christ, and therefore there more is expected of us and the consequences are even more certain. 
So he draws this contrast, for if they didn't escape who refused the one who spoke from Sinai, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Going on, he says, describing the one who speaks from heaven is the one whose voice then shook the earth. That is, at Sinai, shook the earth. But now he has promised. So he goes back in this contrast from Sinai, shaking the earth, physical manifestation, to the present situation. Now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but heaven. This is speaking of judgment that will come, and this is what comes eventually at, and it's just a broad term for judgment. There's judgment evaluation at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs for the believer uh, immediately after the rapture. And we know from our study of Revelation 4 and 5 that this occurs before the tribulation begins. By the time uh, the Lamb goes to uh, receives the scroll, which he opens, which begins the tribulation from a heavenly perspective. Before that happens, the saints have already, the 24 elders there before the throne, and there's a lengthy analysis of that in the Revelation series, that the 24 elders represent the resurrected, reward, raptured, and rewarded church-age believers. They have Stephanos crowns on their heads, which are reward crowns, as opposed to diademos crowns, which are crowns of royalty. So the fact that they are wearing the Stephanos crowns, they can't be, these aren't angels. Angels don't receive rewards like that. There are various other reasons within the text, including the hymn that they sing says that they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, angels aren't redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So the 24 elders represent uh, redeemed mankind, and that can only be the church. So there's the Bema seat that takes place at that point. Then there's a judgment that occurs after the tribulation, the judgment upon the surviving Jews, surviving Gentiles. And then, of course, we have the uh, great white throne judgment that occurs at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. So this is just a broad general statement that judgment is coming. It's not being specific to any one judgment, as we will see. It, it's applied specifically here uh, to uh, warn church-age believers. So God says, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, present tense, yet once more, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, so you have things that won't remain and things that will remain. Well, that's the same thing that we see depicted in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You have gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. The wood, hay, and straw won't survive the judgment seat of Christ. The gold, silver, and precious stones, these are works that are done by when we walk in the Spirit, when we're abiding in Christ, when we're in fellowship. The Holy Spirit produces those works that survives on into uh, into eternity. So the things that are being shaken, the things that are made uh, that won't remain are the, are the wood, hay, and straw, and the things that will remain are the gold, silver, and precious stones. Now we see this same reference to the uh, earthquake and the, uh, the shaking of the earth uh, <clears throat> at Sinai uh, described in Psalm 67, verses 7 and 8. The Psalms are rich with detail about what happened at Sinai, details that aren't included in the, uh, in the description in Exodus chapter uh, 19 and 20. It's just not there. God didn't feel like it was necessary, didn't believe it was necessary to reveal everything at that point. So we can find different references, different descriptions in the, um, in the Psalms that uh, fill in the gaps. For example, when I pointed out when we read through Exodus 19 that God descended in a dark cloud and there was thundering and there was lightning. Didn't mention rain, did it? But we have rain mentioned here in Psalm 67, 7 and 8. O God, when thou didst go forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, 
the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain at the presence of God, the God of Sinai, at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So there were the dark clouds, the thunder, the lightning. There was also, uh, there was also rain. The heavens poured down uh, rain. Now the application to us comes in verse 28, which says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Remember, part of what endures is that which can't be shaken. We're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This is the conclusion he draws, having gone through everything in chapter 12, and and the application and warning. He says, now, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... This is the messianic kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom, the kingdom that will come when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period. This is a a heavenly kingdom in the Gospels. It's referred to as the kingdom of God and the, as well as the kingdom of heaven. The term kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are not talking about two different kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven is a term, I believe, that is unique to uh, Malachi. All of the uses of that uh, are found with I mean, not Malachi Matthew are found within Matthew's gospel. The other gospel writers use uh, the other term, kingdom of God. So therefore, we are receiving a kingdom as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are raptured and rewarded, part of our reward is that we are going to serve God and serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the administration of the millennial kingdom. We're going to have different positions of responsibility, and we are being trained today to have the capacity to serve in those positions when uh, the kingdom is established. So the writer here is reminding them of what their future destiny is, what our future destiny is as believers, is that because one day in the future we're going to have the opportunity to serve in the administration of the kingdom on earth, we have to live today in light of that reality. We have to be prepared. We recognize we're being prepared today. So the more we learn to walk by means of the Spirit to serve God, we build in our souls the capacity to to serve God, to glorify Him, and to understand how to live in the midst of opposition. This prepares our character and it prepares our maturity so that we can then serve him in the millennial kingdom. Now, at the end of this verse, it says, by which, let us have grace, by which, that is by grace, that refers to grace orientation, learning to live and walk by means of grace. That takes us back, remember, to the warning that came uh, in relationship to being uh, weak in race. The imagery that <clears throat> undergirds all of chapter 12 is the image of a race. We're to run with endurance the race that is set before us by keeping our focus, by looking unto Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. Now, some who run the race grow weary. They're tired. Their legs give out. Their muscles give out. And so the... Uh, challenge that's given to us in verse 12 was therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees don't give up don't fade out of the race before you hit the finish line keep running so you need to strengthen the hands that hang down and the and the feeble knees make straight paths that's a reference to sound doctrine and uh, we're to pursue peace with all people we studied that in terms of of having peaceful relationships uh, as a mandate for all those in our periphery, uh, pursue peace with all people and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. That's a special reward for uh, maturing believers in the uh, millennial kingdom. So let, looking carefully again, verse 15, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And I pointed out what that, mean, what that means and what that meant was that instead of Dealing with people in grace and forgiveness and pursuing peace, there are some that just are going to hold a grudge, uh, be involved in, in vengeance and a desire for 
uh, some kind of uh, retribution in a wrong way motivated by selfishness instead of being motivated by a desire uh, to see righteousness done. And sometimes we, that should be our motivation. Now, when we're looking at this verse, we're told, let us have grace. This is the same grace he's talking about. We are to have, gr- have grace dominate all of the aspects of our relationships, forgiving one another as uh, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, uh, pursuing peace with all men. That is to characterize us. And so grace, grace orientation undergirds everything in the uh, spiritual life. It is on the basis of grace that we serve God acceptably. And then we have two interesting words that are n- not common today, reverence and godly fear. And when you look at these two words, I, I, <clears throat> these are words that usually reverberate with all of the heavy trappings of uh, years of uh, religion and piety and Christianity, and their meaning gets lost. It's like words like holiness. It's words that are used so much that we we lose or miss their significance. And the first word translates a Greek word, eulabeia, which refers to fear or awe or piety. It's used four times in the New Testament, and it means someone who's devout. That means someone who is consistent in their pursuit of spiritual growth and someone who's God-fearing, somebody who recognizes the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, which is not just respect for God, but it's a certain um, sense of fear of retribution. Uh, uh, Most of you probably loved your father very much, but there were times when you did wrong, and there was a certain fear of retribution or punishment that would come in a correct way from your father. That's the idea here. We love and respect God, but we know there are consequences to wrong decisions. And so we serve God with reverence and with godly fear. Now, that's a funny way to translate it, but it's somewhat difficult word. It's a word that's only used one time in the New Testament, and that is the word daos, daos which means an emotion of profound respect or reverence for deity. So there's an overlap between these two words, and together they respect a deep, profound respect for God, recognition that, that we live in the midst of the angelic conflict, and that the decisions we make and the actions that we take are, and the thoughts that we have, everything are all related to our spiritual destiny and all related to our future role as those who will reign in the body of Christ with the Lord Jesus Christ during the uh, during the millennial kingdom and then on into on into eternity. So because we're receiving this kingdom, because we're thinking in terms of our future destiny, uh, which can't be shaken, that won't disappear. We are to live on the basis of a grace mentality, a grace mentality, which means we deal with people not in terms of the nasty scumbags that they actually are, the fools, the idiots, or whatever that cross our paths, but we deal with them in the same way God deals with us as obnoxious individuals who've been disobedient to God. He deals with us in grace and in kindness and we are to uh, let that govern everything in our life. We should be known as a kind and gracious people. And we are to serve God with this attitude of reverence and godly fear or this reverence and respect. And then that is explained for our God is a consuming fire. And that is a very good translation, and it refers to... For example, Deuteronomy 4.24 is a good reference in the Old Testament, but this indicates that God is a judge and there is an evaluation coming. So often uh, we emphasize the grace of God in terms of our salvation, that it's not based on works, that sin's all paid for at the cross, that sin's not an issue, but for the rest of our life after we are saved, Sin is an issue only that for all the times that we're sinning, we're not producing uh, in terms of walking by the Spirit, and we're not growing and maturing. It's just wasted time, wasted energy, 
and wasted wasted uh, opportunity. And if our life is dedicated to wasted opportunity and we're serving ourselves or we're serving our sin nature rather than serving the Lord, then that adds up to nothing. And so the focal point is that we are to be serving the Lord and growing and maturing uh, in him because there is a, a evaluation coming at the judgment seat of Christ, otherwise known as the Bema. Now, at this point, the writer is going to shift gears into giving some specific direction. There are a series of commandments that are given between verse 1 and verse 17 in the coming chapter that are going to focus us on specific areas of application. Now, what's interesting is we haven't had the writer of Hebrews get this specific in terms of application for 12 chapters. And now when we come to the end, now he's going to get down to specific application. Now, there's an interesting application to his structure here that is important for us to understand. We live in a world today where we want immediate gratification. People want to go to church and they don't want to get all confused or or have to think about theology and doctrine. They just want to go listen to a sermon where uh, basic questions are going to be asked. I remember taking a, a, a class on church growth when I was in seminary. And one of the things that the speaker, the professor said was you ought to have sermon series and sermon titles that answer questions. People are coming. They want to know how to have a happy marriage, how to be successful in life. They want to know how to how to avoid depression and destruction and how to raise godly kids and all these all these questions. And so try to structure your sermons in terms of answering those kinds of questions. Well, that just leads to and and promotes the ongoing uh, superficial approach to the Christian life, and it actually promotes a self-righteous approach to the Christian life because when you remove the doctrinal foundation, sometimes I've thought about doing something like this and going through all of the epistles in the New Testament and uh, categorizing each chapter as to whether it was a doctrinal or a teaching chapter explaining uh, how we are to think and from the chapters that deal with with application. And we would probably be surprised to discover that our New Testament would shrink by about two-thirds because about two-thirds of the New Testament, I think, have to do with understanding what God has done for us at the cross and the implications of that for our day-to-day life. But it is understanding uh, justification. Look at Romans for just a second, which we will uh, start at some time uh, in the future. When I finish up Hebrews, we're going to jump into Romans. And um, when we get into Hebrew and we get into Romans, we'll discover the first 11 chapters of Romans. Romans has 15 chapters or maybe 16. Um, the first 11 chapters all deal with very what we, people today would call heavy theology. And then it's only the last four chapters or five chapters that focus on application. But even the application section deals with a lot of, uh, a lot of what people today would call doctrine. Now, the way I use doctrine is to include both because doctrine teaches you not only what uh, we might call the theoretical uh, or thought thoughtful undergirdings of what we do, but also what we do. When we cut that out and you take away those doctrinal sections, all you're left with is nothing more than another ethical list of do's and don'ts. And the Christian life is not an ethic. It's not based on ethics. It's based on walking by the Spirit. Now, it has ethics. It has do's and don'ts. But the do's and don'ts are not the focal point. The focal point is understanding who we are in Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ has provided for us, and how we walk by the Spirit, because we can't do the do's and don'ts if we're not walking by the Spirit. The Christian life is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps religious life. It's not a life based on morality. It is a life based on a spiritual relationship with God the Holy Spirit who produces in us this changed uh, change mentality and changed lifestyle. 
It's not legalism. Legalism is just trying to do it by means of the flesh. That was the whole problem in the, with the Galatian believers, is that the Judaizers had come in behind Paul and, uh, and, and Barnabas, and they were saying, if you really want to experience a spiritual life, you have to obey the law. And no talk, no discussion about the role of God, the Holy Spirit at all. So once again, it just reduces the Christian life to, to just morality. And that is what most, what passes in most churches and most denominations as the spiritual life is just go out there and quit doing this and start doing that and you'll be spiritual. That is not what the Bible says. Anybody can morally reform their life. But to do it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit takes a relationship with the Spirit that is based on all of these doctrinal uh, sections within the Word of God, understanding what Christ did for us on the cross, understanding who we are in Christ in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and our identification with Him and what that means in terms of being freed from the power of the sin nature and the role of God, the Holy Spirit, and understanding all that. That's what Paul does in the first uh, eight chapters of Romans is to make sure you understand. It does that in the first three chapters of Galatians. Does it first two, I mean, first three chapters of Ephesians. Does it in the first uh, five chapters in Galatians. Does it in the first uh, couple of chapters in Colossians. Does it, and the writer of Hebrews does it for 12 chapters before he gets down to those nice, easy bullet principles, do this, don't do that, uh, that we find coming up in the chapter. So we can't, you can't understand the insignificance and the role of the prohibitions and mandates in chapter 13 if you don't lock it down in terms of the framework of grace uh, and understanding the training apparatus of the spiritual life for our future destiny in the uh, in the millennial kingdom that's described in these first uh, 12 chapters. So when we start getting into uh, chapter 13, we see that the first commandment that is reiterated here is the command to let brotherly love continue. And it is a mandate <clears throat> that is given, uh, even though it is addressed in the singular, it is a, applies to every believer. It's given in the uh, singular because it is addressed to, um, or because it's applied to each individual. The word for brother, brotherly love is the compound word Philadelphia from the noun philos, meaning love, and autophos, meaning a brother. And combined together, it means brotherly love. Now, normally when we think about this, the word that comes to our mind, the Greek word for love that comes to our mind is agape, or the verb agapao. That's the verb, as we'll see, that Jesus used in John 13, 34, and 35 when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So if Jesus used agapao there, that we are to love in that agape sense, which is more of a, of a mental attitude love than philos. Philos is a more intimate love. It's not that they're opposites or they overlap. It's that philos is a subset of agapos, agape love. Agape love is, can cover a, a wide spectrum of love. And um, philos love is a more intimate love, a more of a friendship is related to it. So it's a subset of agape love. It's not one or the other. It's that uh, philos love is included within agape love, but there's more to agape love. So let's just see how these words are used, and you might be surprised at a couple of things we discover uh, in the New Testament. So we're, one other thing I want to point out here is the verb continue, the word continue, translates the verb meno. Minnow is the word that's used in John 15 that we are to abide in Christ. Just as the branch abides in the vine, so we are to abide in Christ. It's a term uh, that is used many times in 1 John as well that is akin to fellowship. It's not always used that way, 
but it is primarily used that way in John 15, a number of later passages in John, as well as in 1 John. So whenever I see that word, the first thing that comes to my mind is this is talking about fellowship. It's not talking about getting saved. So it's a fellowship issue here that love is to characterize our ongoing relationship with Christ. So brotherly love is to continue. Well, let's look at some of the other places in the New Testament where we have this word Philadelphia used and see how it relates to the spiritual life. In Romans 12.10, the first chapter in Romans that starts dealing with application, Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Now, that's the New King James translation. I would switch it around because the first word is Philadelphia. And I would say that it should be translated, have brotherly love toward one another with kind affection. That is philostorge. It's the only time that uh, this word is used in the New Testament. Storge had to do with the kind of love of a stork. And if you're in, I should have thought about, I just thought about this now, but I remember when we first went to uh, Greece and you're driving down the highways in Greece and you see these huge stork nests on top of the telephone poles and up in the trees. And so as the mother stork took care of her babies, that was a certain kind of love as they emphasizing affection and care. And so storge was one word that was used to describe one kind of love. In Greek, you had eros describing a sexual lust. You had agape. You had philos. You had storge. And I think there were a couple of other minor words that were also used for love. This is the only time you have a form of storge used in the New Testament. So brotherly love should be Philadelphia. And this kind affection should be how uh, the philostorge is translated. So we're to <clears throat> be to show uh, brotherly love towards one another with kind affection, and this is then described in a little more concrete sense in honor, giving preference to one another. It's not me first. We're not self-absorbed. It is always trying to help the other person, putting the other person first. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, we read, uh, Paul says, this is just before that well-known rapture section. He says, but concerning brotherly love, there's uh, uh, Philadelphia again, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to what? To love one another. Notice, he's taught, he, uses Phil, um, he uses Philadelphia first, and then he describes it with agapao, so that these are seen as overlapping and synonymous and not different kinds of love, so that it, within the body of Christ there is an emphasis on this familial type of love that goes beyond something of just a, a mental attitude love that is devoid of mental attitude sins. There is in the love we're to have for one another, there is a positive uh, initiating uh, involvement with other people, not just avoiding the negatives. It also involves the positives. The classic example is from the Gospels with the, um, the uh, Samaritan who is, uh, comes along and he's seen the uh, uh, Jewish traveler who's been beaten up and robbed and the Samaritan, who is certainly no friend of the Jews because they had such a prejudice towards him, picks him up, takes him home, takes care of him, gives him new clothes, nurses him back to health, uh, gives him food, gives him money, and helps him on his way. So that uh, this illustrates the kind of love we should have. It's not just a love that that avoids negative sins, but a love that reaches out and that initiates and that is positive. So <clears throat> when we go back to that new commandment that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as he loved us, and that we are also to love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We see that in these passages, like for specifically the First Thess 4.9 passage, there is a connection between agapao love and Philadelphia love. Then, just to connect all the dots for you, 
And John 13 here is at the end of the upper room discourse as they get ready to leave to go to Gethsemane. In John 15, where we have the discourse on abiding in him, he then ties it together using both the word for love, uh, agape, as well as uh, emphasizing uh, obedience uh, in the word. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's that word minnow. Keep my commandments, you abide in my love. How do you stay in fellowship? By being obedient. If you're disobedient, you're you're out of fellowship. You have to confess your sins and you're back in fellowship. If you keep my commandments, you will abide, you'll stay in fellowship. That's what he's saying. You'll stay in fellowship, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. When you're out of fellowship, you lose that joy. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So here we have love related to staying in fellowship, to abiding in Christ. Now, one other passage to go to on this is in 1 Peter 1.22 and 2 Peter 1.7. In 1 Peter 1.22, Peter says, Since you have purified, and he uses a perfect participle here, which indicates completed action. Since you have purified your souls... By obeying the truth through the Spirit. So this, has, because it's completed action, probably alludes to being set apart to God in Christ at the moment of salvation. Since you have purified your souls uh, by obeying the truth through the Spirit uh, in sincere love of the brethren, then he commands, love one another fervently. And the word translated fervently is uh, the Greek word ektenos, which indicates constantly or continuously with a pure heart, katharos, a cleansed heart. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us, katharizo, the verb form, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this loving one another uh, constantly only occurs when we have, when we're in fellowship, when we are cleansed from sin. And then we have another use of it. Uh, in Second um, um, Peter one seven, to godliness, brotherly kindness. That's uh, Philadelphia again. And to brotherly kindness, add love. There's a progression there, starting in about verse five of Second Peter one five, going through various uh, virtues and disciplines in the spiritual life. And the final one is is love, agape. So brotherly kindness, Adelphia, is a part of the growth of the believer and leading to uh, love in terms of love for one another, the sign of being a believer. So the first commandment there is that we are to uh, let brotherly love continue or to abide in brotherly love. In verse 2, we get our first example of this. Do not forget to entertain strangers. So now he's talking about hospitality to strangers, to people we don't know. And here we see an allusion back to an incident in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham is near the Oaks of Mamre down near Hebron and he looks out and he sees three uh, travelers approaching his tent. And he goes out and meets them. He invites them to come in and stay at his house. Uh, They stay. He provides some food and water for them so that they can rest. He goes out and kills a calf and butchers it and prepares a meal. It's not like running down to uh, running down to HEB or running down to Whole Foods and just picking up a prepared meal and coming home and taking care of your guests. It takes a while to kill the calf and to skin it and to butcher it and to build a fire and to cook it. So this is a long day affair. But this is the idea here of hospitality. And he says, don't forget to uh, entertain strangers or to be hospitable towards strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly or unknowingly entertained angels. Now, this is one of those verses people take out of context and say, well, somebody knocked on my door and I ought to invite them in, the homeless person who's going to, you know, commit some kind of violent crime against me, invite them into my house because they might be an angel. 
this is, you only interpret it that way if you're ignorant of the Bible. Uh, this is a historical reference to the fact that when Abraham invited these three men in, one is the uh, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and the other two are angels that get sent on at the end of the chapter to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and to rescue Lot and attempt to rescue his wife uh, from uh, from Sodom. So we're told, uh, don't forget to entertain strangers, for by uh, so doing, some have unknowingly entertained uh, angels. That happened in the Old Testament in Genesis 18. So the first example of brotherly love is to be hospitable. This is also required of pastors. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and Titus 1, 8, Christian leaders are uh, commanded to be hospitable to others. In verse 3, we have our second specific example of love for one another. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Now, this isn't talking about, uh, in terms of the immediate context, it's not talking about a prison ministry up at the um, uh, pr- prison up at Huntsville or some other prison. That can be an application. This is talking about believers who have been uh, put in prison uh, for their faith. That's the immediate context. They, they're un- remember, they're undergoing persecution from various uh, Jewish and Roman authorities in uh, in Judea because of their Christianity. So they're to remember them as if that was them in there. How would you like to be treated if you were in prison? This is just a manifestation of the... Uh, of the uh, golden rule. Now, I don't know if y'all caught this on the news. Y'all need to be really observant in the news these days because our beloved president had one of his backyard town meetings this last week in Albuquerque. And somebody, a, somebody who was primed to ask this question in the audience said, well, Mr. President, why did you become a Christian? And he did specifically state that he believed that Jesus died and paid for his sins. He specifically said that. But he also said that the reason he became a Christian, even though he didn't grow up in a church-going home, was because uh, he he believed in the precepts of Jesus. Number one, that we are to be our brother's keeper. And number two, the golden rule. Well, for the biblically illiterate, that sounds so religious and so nice. But the first, let's just address the first one. Being your brother's keeper. Nowhere are we commanded to be our brother's keeper. That is a favorite verse from those who have a socialism, socialist view of Christianity. That we are supposed to give everything away to help the poor. And that the government, if we don't do it, then get the government to make us do it. Uh, that is just garbage. That has nothing to do with Christianity. The only place that phrase is used in the Bible is in Genesis 4 when, when Cain killed Abel and God comes to Cain and says, I can't find your brother. Where is he? And Cain said, who am I? My brother's keeper? You know, it is a sarcastic retort to God to avoid answering the question. It is not a mandate by Jesus. It's in Genesis 4. The fourth chapter of the Bible. Jesus doesn't come around for 4,000 years. It's not unique to Christianity. I don't know one person who had two brain cells that connected to each other that became a Christian based on that verse. It just doesn't happen. Second thing is the golden rule. You, there are uh, various uh, proverb, pr- proverbial statements in anything from the Code of Hammurabi, which actually was written prior to the Mosaic Law, to Confucius, to Buddhism, to Shintoism, various forms of the statement that people should put themselves in the place of other people and treat people as they would want to be treated. Um, This, I think, has its origin in revelation from God, and it works its way out uh, through the history of other uh, religions as they sort of water things down and change things and distort things. But it's not something that is unique to Christianity. That's my point. I mean, Jesus refers to it in Luke chapter 10 uh, in one form, but that's really a comment on uh, Leviticus 18.16, to love your neighbor as yourself. So neither of these little things that our president mentioned as, as being precepts of Jesus are really precepts of Jesus. 
And what it does is it just shows his absolute abysmal ignorance of Christianity in the Bible. Kind of like when his vice president was asked what his favorite book in the New Testament was, and he said it was Job. You know, politicians just need to keep their mouth shut. I mean, I don't care if they're pagan. I don't care if they don't know anything about the Bible. But don't insult the intelligence of the Christians in the country by misquoting, misrepresenting uh, the Bible and just show that you're stupid and ignorant about Christianity and religion. Or maybe it's just their speech writers. I don't know. But anyway, the point here is to put yourself in the place of these prisoners. How would you want them treated? They don't, they're not given good food in a Roman prison or a Jewish prison. So take, they would take food to them. In some cases, uh, the leaders in the local churches would be able to bribe the guards to spend the night with their church members who were in, in prison. And they could take food to them and they could help them and minister to their needs and uh, bring uh, some unleavened bread and wine so they could have uh, the Lord's table and teach them and encourage them uh, from the word. So the second thing we're to do is to rem- remember the prisoners as if chained with them. The third thing has to do with marriage. Um, going back to the second divine institution, that of all the places that you're going to apply the principle to love one another uh, as the Lord loved you, it ought to be in your marriage. It ought to have to do, especially husbands are commanded to love your wives, but wives also do love their husbands, and marriage is honorable, and the marriage bed should not be defiled. There should not be sex outside of marriage, either with the same-sex partner or other sex partner. Marriage and sex should not be uh, conducted outside of, uh, I mean, sex should not be conducted outside of marriage, and it should be restricted to marriage, which is between a man and a woman, biblically, not between Adam and Steve or uh, Eve and Susie. Okay, it is between a man and a woman, and that that any kind of sexual activity uh, inside of uh, or outside of marriage comes under classification of either fornication, where there's no marriage involved in either party, or adultery, which is where one or both of the parties are married. God will judge. This is seen in a number of passages in uh, in New Testament. Uh, in scriptures in the New Testament, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians 5, 19 and 21, where those who have a uh, continue in carnality uh, will not enter, meaning they will not inherit in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean they lose salvation, but that there are consequences to such, uh, such behavior, refusing uh, to listen to God as seen back in verse uh, 25 and 26 of the previous chapter. So the summary is then given in verse 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. This involves in marriage. This involves in your uh, life and ignoring the needs of those who are in prison. Uh, this involves uh, not being covetous, and this involves uh, hospitality and taking care of strangers, all of that would just be pure covetousness or selfishness, which is the op- at, uh, the opposite of love. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, <clears throat> for he himself has said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." This is a quote from several or a summary of several th- quotes in the Old Testament, Genesis twenty eight fifteen, where God promised Abraham, or excuse me, where God promises. Um, uh, Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. This is a promise to, um, uh, to Jacob as he is leaving to, to go north. God said, I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Again, Moses reiterates this in principle in Deuteronomy 31, uh, 6 to 8, that God would be with them and he would not leave or forsake them. Do not fear or be dismayed. Again, it's reiterated to Joshua in Joshua uh, 1.5. And so we have the conclusion to this opening section in verse 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, my Azer, 
This is the same word that's used, I mean the Hebrew in the original, the same word that's used of a wife. A wife is to be an etzer. This is not a subordinate position because the only other person in all of the scripture who's defined as an etzer or a helper is God. So if you say, oh, this is so demeaning to women that they are to be an assistant to men, what you have said is for God to assist us is a demeaning position. You've just committed blasphemy. So verse 6 says, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man uh, do to me? And this comes from a couple of passages in the Psalms. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 118, 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All right, this takes us up to uh, verse 7, and we will continue next time with uh, the remainder of these application uh, exhortations that the writer of Hebrews gives between verse 7 and 17. Let's, Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this portion of your word and to be challenged by the application here, the need to uh, love one another as Christ loved us, and to uh, apply this in all the different areas in which the scripture gives uh, application. Uh, We pray that as God the Holy Spirit drives this home in our lives, that we would be responsive to uh, his teaching and his guidance, and that we would be consistent in our application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.